happy week. Yes, a very interesting week. And, you know, we've kind of mentioned before we had a, a fantastic case about a, a guy we successfully showed was under coercive control and he was the victim of of domestic violence. And that's kind of the topic that we want to talk Within about today. Within a marriage. Within a marriage. And then we had another case with a young man who was a university who was dating somebody who was the victim of violence as well. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to talk about... Can is, men be the victim of domestic violence? Right. Is, is, is intimate partner violence simply uh, a factor of one gender? And the answer to that is no. And so one of the premises we're talking about is can men be victims of domestic violence? And yes, they can. And um, you've read and have mentioned this interesting... Not only have I read it, but I I know the author, and he's a delightful, amazing person who's done so much, so much work to try and advance the understanding of domestic violence in Canada, Dr. Donald Dutton. And, you know, it's extremely interesting. The book's called Rethinking Domestic Violence. It's Rethinking Domestic Violence by Donald Dutton, and we've referred to this before, and and I'd, I'd love if this research could be updated. Um. But one of the lead-in portions of a chapter about the domestic violence of men, and again, we're not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that um, violence doesn't occur to women. It's intimate partner violence, which includes men, women, or however you view your gender. But you know, he raises an interesting point. The last chapter reviewed data that had been troubling for feminists since the first UN uh, national survey. Women are as violent as males. Because this finding contradicts feminist theory, it has been suppressed, underreported, reinterpreted, or denied. The feminine violence rates have been portrayed as self-defensive violence, less serious, or as a result of reporting differences. In fact, they equal or exceed male rates. They include female violence against nonviolent males, and they have serious consequences for males. So that's so, the lead-in to this, and it's yeah. a legitimate, peer-reviewed study. And I happen to know this amazing woman named Erin Pizzi, who's from the UK. She started the very first women's shelter in the UK, and she tried to bring attention to the fact that as she started these shelters, that she she came to see that that women had violence problems themselves and that if you didn't address the the violence in the woman she would go right back into the same situation or take a, a non-violent man and make him violent she's got amazing work out there mm-hmm. but she was completely silenced and she had she went through uh, you know a, a lot of uh, difficulties in terms of trying to do honest work and, and, and bring attention to the fact that violence is reciprocal and you cannot treat one side and of, not exclusive to one gender yeah, you cannot treat one side of the violence factor without treating the other side of it and she was sincerely trying to make a difference and, and, and improve the world Erin Pissy, she's an amazing woman and so what makes this discussion so apposite for us right now is that I love in, that word uh-huh. <laughs> In the last, you know, six to nine months, we've litigated three serious cases 
um, where we have seen violence against men. One of them where we've had an interesting result, which we've spoken about a number of times, where we've been able to call expert evidence to establish the abuse that this young man suffered at the hands of his wife, which was accepted by the court. And it's serious because what we need to do is try and advance a better nuanced and um, insightful understanding that this type of intimate partner violence is not exclusive to one gender, that we have insufficient research uh, into violence against men. We lack sufficient resources for men who are victims of violence. We lack men's shelters and we lack a healthy... Not only that, but men are mocked. They're mocked when they talk about being abused by their female partner. Yeah, and so let's go back to this book for a second. There was another interesting tidbit of data where they were talking about studies with respect to, and it's a term I'm not uh, familiar with, but what they called it was terroristic type of relationships where you're in an intimate relationship and it's the, the, the actual course of control and or physical violence is, is almost at akin to terrorism. There was a very high percentage of female victims who feared for their life, 83%, but equally so within the study, 77% of men feared for their life. So that's significant. And a lot of what was discussed, just to frame this, was they looked at dating relationships. But that's not um, really different than marriage relationships. And when they researched this with a number of approaches, including the psychology of it, they looked at control and how that translated into violence. So the primary path leading to the use of force in a dating relationship was initially due to the presence of anxious attachments influencing the development of an angry temperament, then that leads to behaviors to control the partner. The controlling behavior is, however, the significant mediator between the angry temperament and greater frequency of severity of dating violence. Bit of a complex sentence, but it's really interesting because we've seen this literally in our cases play out in dating relationship scenarios and marriage scenarios where there is one party that has, whether you call it an anxious attachment, a maladaptive attachment, a difficulty attaching, and they are jealous, they're insecure, and then that translates into coercive control and violence. And that goes both ways. Coercive control is such an interesting thing because We've seen in Canadian Parliament that they've tried to bring in legislation to add to the criminal code that coercive control is a form of violence. But the concern that was expressed, and the bill didn't get very far, but the concern that was expressed was that coercive control and this type of manipulation and uh, emotional control over somebody could result in women being charged under the criminal code if it was added to the, they were very concerned to make sure that women don't get charged except that it has now creeped into bail so with the recent amendments that happened with respect to bail reform because our politicians were concerned about the violence 
It was in the community with respect to shootings and repeat, repeat offenders using gun violence. They slipped into the legislation uh, changes to domestic or intimate partner violence cases. And when it comes to a bail hearing, the judge or justice of the peace who are his, his hearing the bail hearing can consider course of control elements. Pause. That slipped in, wasn't mentioned by the politicians. So although it's not part of a criminal code offense, thank God, it is part of the bail provisions. So if you have somebody who has previously been found guilty of a domestic offense, and it could result in a conditional discharge, and I'm not minimizing it, but something happens, but it's a conditional discharge. There's a second offense, they're up for bail. There is this consideration of con course of control as part of the overall matrix. And frankly, you have it, you have it in the bail process, even if you're first time involved in a charge. That's a very insidious slippage with respect to this notion of course of control. And we know it's real. Course of control goes both ways. It oh, deals yeah. with all sorts of things. It's insidious. But it's very hard. And it's difficult to describe when it's actually happening. It's, it is. It's and, it, but, and it's legitimate for it both sides yeah. or all sides. However, I don't want to be seen as saying, you know, it happens in all, you know, genders, whether it's LGBT community or just one sec. But, but how you define this in some criminal context is very challenging for me, and I don't think it should ever happen. There's something mentioned in this, in this uh, outline. I, I don't think it should. <clears throat> that I think is very important, and that's monitoring. When you find yourself in a relationship where you're recording the person that you're living with, yeah, something's wrong, get the hell out, right? Give, like, a, give a more concrete example. Okay, so there's surreptitious recording where people are like secretly recording each other and they're trying to get evidence on each other. Okay, if you're doing that, you're in a toxic relationship, get the hell out. What are you doing? Sometimes you're in a relationship where you can actually say, you can't talk to me unless I'm recording you because because this is toxic. Right. And and you know you're getting out. But seriously, if you get to a point at any whether whether you're openly recording or whether you're surreptitiously recording, that is not why are you still there? Look, everybody has, you know, I, I it, that's not for us to judge. So like knock your socks off. But there are cases I'm we've just saying, seen I'm just saying because that's one of the things on monitoring each other. It's yeah, so it's a things. factor of control. So we've seen cases where either party has been involved in open or or concealed monitoring of the other party. But we've seen cases, and, and what's interesting to talk about here within this dynamic is, you know, when we talk about violence perpetrated against men, um, you know, certain theories promulgated by certain interest groups would say that um, females are universally more vulnerable to abuse by men than men are to abuse by women. And and he cites some very good studies here yes. where you see so that, that that's just not a legitimate, well reliable finding. And that um, although women are at higher risk of injury and more lasting impact, and I understand that, the violence victimization is equal and there are sometimes more unique um, aspects to it. So 
you can find females involved in more stalking and emotional abuse, which can then have, as he found in these findings, far more lasting impacts. And so men, men are injured and are not immune to being seriously injured simply because the, the rates may be slightly lower. Um, men should not be denied protection, nor denied the legitimacy that they can be abused in these various ways, including physical and emotional abuse. Let's talk about another kind of abuse, though. Financial abuse. Yeah. So he, he, here's, and this is the, the final point that I, I feel like making about this. So this I, I got two more, because yeah, okay. we've seen this play out in our cases. I think it's important to talk about. I know, and there's a lot we can say still. But financial abuse primarily is like, oh, women can be under financial control. By the way, control. that's a factor. That's a f***ing factor as well in the bail provisions as well yeah. now. That uh, women should be like, oh, I can't leave because I have no money. But you know what I've seen a lot? Women who go out and spend so much money on their husband's credit card that he's a slave to her. And she's completely financially abusing the guy by keeping him in debt. Look, she relationships are relationships and people make their deals in their relationships. But, but we have seen legitimate cases where, you know, for example, uh, the complainant in a case uh, and we've got a high conflict divorce in the backdrop, which is the dynamic. And we've seen that, in fact, the complainant has drawn from the, the finances of the family for her own particular needs to the detriment of them as a couple. And it has caused incredible stress for one party, and it's in, in our cases, you know, the male. And it's been very difficult for that person to overcome. And then when you've seen it play out well, in the family litigation... But they're not believed the same way either. Well, you have to start doing what we do, which is we've, we've integrated the family litigation, the financial statements, and all that other uh, documentary support for our client's narrative. And we have started to use expert evidence now. And that is where you, where I think defense lawyers have to go to push the boundary of what's going to be acceptable about abuse of men in these relationships. And again, we're not saying women are not abused. That's not what we're saying. It's not a competition. It's just not, a, it's right. It's not a competition. It happens both ways. Abuse, whether it is physical, emotional, or coercive control, it doesn't have a particular gender identity. And we have seen it now, and I, and I have said that, you and I have said this in previous episodes, it's statistically significant that we're seeing this. And we need to break through this, sorry to use this, uh, this analogy, the glass ceiling about this, so that it's finally accepted. Yeah, but statistically, at the same time, you know how much I hate numbers, because every case is about people. We cannot, we cannot say, I don't believe this guy because most women are the abused people or, you know, statistically this or that. It's like every single case is about actual people, actual people, and that's what we do. That's why, we, that's why we're so good at what we do. I agree that, with you, but judges are not allowed to say, because of the majority of abuse X, Y, and Z, I don't believe this. Those are stereotypes which they can't rely on. But what we can say anecdotally, as criminal defense lawyers, as, as a firm that has been specializing in this now for over 20 years, that what we are seeing as an abundance of cases involving this type of abuse of males, it's significant and it can't be ignored anymore. It cannot be ignored. Abuse goes every single way. 
children, men, females, whatever you classify yourself or identify as, it goes all, it goes, everybody's involved in it. And it's time that we grow up and we recognize it. It's time that we understand the unhealthy dynamics and try and deal with this and deal with the ideology instead of always resulting in f***ing criminal charges that cause incredible stigmatization. I mean, we've had men commit suicide. And it's time that we've we... have seen it. <laughs> it's time... We have. We have. One... one uh, you know, it will impact me for as long as I live. I had a client many years ago who was falsely accused. I finally... I fought hard. Charges were drawn. And he was in such desperation in the high-conflict divorce, he committed suicide. This guy was a doctor with two children, and he couldn't see a way through and killed himself. And this needs to stop. We need to have a better, holistic, healthy understanding of abuse, and we need to have a better way of dealing with this. And as I've said before, we need to understand that sometimes women do manipulate men, and sometimes the woman isn't actually the victim. True. Good night. If you liked our episode, please do me a favor and like, share, and subscribe. Hit notification and write us comments. I sound like a bad... 1960s commercial you sounded like a delightful bad 60s <laughs> commercial <laughs> just again thank you everybody we get great commentary when when we go live um and and keep sending us the questions your engagement means everything to us because aside from our, our work in the in the courts we enjoy this dialogue and working with people because this is our connection so thank you very much good night <laughs>